The film that leftists want Joker to be is actually the film that Parasite is. I mean, I think it's way more than that. I think it's its ambitions were even bigger than Joker's were. Hey yo, what is going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. And this week we are going to be doing a philosophical film analysis of sorts. And we'll, I'm sure we'll broaden this out to talk about all kinds of things. Class, struc- uh, class struggle and economic inequality, and also just how to make a good goddamn movie. We're talking about Parasite, motherfuckers. Yeah. Like we do. And Troy, you just saw this film because it just came out in the States, right? Yeah, yeah, just this weekend. Okay, cool. Yeah, I saw it at the Sydney Film Fest like a few months, how many months, maybe five months ago, something like that, and it was fantastic. And then I recently just rewatched it because we talked about it on Wisecracks Show Me the Meaning, and so I watched a uh, a version, a screener version as well, so I've seen it twice now, and uh, I don't know, I, it definitely holds up the second time through, and you see a lot more stuff, so I'm excited to kind of delve into it with you. Yeah, I was really excited by the fact that uh, I think I saw It Chapter 2 on opening weekend, and yeah. that was not a very good movie, but there were more people in the theater to see Parasite here than to see It Chapter 2 on opening weekend. That made me uh, interesting. Yeah. It's getting a lot of crazy buzz, like popular buzz for a foreign film that's not um, like an action movie or a horror movie or anything. Okay, well, we can talk about that too because I think there are some probably some interesting cultural reasons why that's the case. Um, so let's uh, let's save that for when we get into the main segment here. We do want to just give, give a quick reminder that if you want to support us, if you find value in what we're producing, if you want us to continue what we're doing, please go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn, and you can sign up for one of our tiers to provide monthly support. Five bucks gets you the whole shebang, the back catalog of all of our back uh our bonus episodes as well as access to a monthly newsletter and to be able to recommend episode topics for future polls that we will be running we'll probably be running one here in the next couple of weeks and we have a brand new bonus episode that is about the whole i don't know the event the debacle the situation the hubbub the whatever it is surrounding the brouhaha of Trump getting booed at the baseball game. And actually a few days later, he got booed at a UFC event as well, Troy, which is interesting. So Yeah, and, and we actually create some original philosophical content there about the uh, propositional content of the boo, courtesy of Austin. Right. Yeah, so if you want to know what the boo means in propositional form, go check out that bonus episode because you'll, <laughs> you'll learn something. <laughs> But first things first, we've got to start off this episode the way we start off every motherfucking episode, and that is with the shitty minute. This is where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that's pissing us off, get it off, gets it off of our chest before we start, you know, the main segment here. So, Troy, relieve yourself. Oh, I'm not sure I appreciate that description of it, but uh, <laughs> so you're aware of this whole uh, Martin Scorsese brouhaha. I love this term. I'm going to keep using it. 
I like I like the word brouhaha too. You know, we also use it in Orange County when we're talking about getting a beer, except we call it a broody ha ha, a brouhaha. Oh, yeah. a, can I get another broody ha ha? Yeah. What about is there go. is there a brody ha ha? A brody ha ha. When you're brown down, with your brodies. Yeah, 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 with your boy Brody, because that's that's what you do in Orange County. You hang out <laughs> with dudes named Brody. <laughs> yes, I am aware of the brouhaha. Um, so yeah, so for those who are listening, the basic, I don't remember the original context in which he said it, maybe it was an interview or something, but, uh, Martin Scorsese, famous director of all the classic, uh, you know, crime dramas and gangster films, um, that everyone knows said something to the degree of, uh, Marvel movies not being cinema. Um, and that created a bit of a firestorm. Uh, so he went into the New York times this week and produce an op-ed sort of actually describing um, his argument and detailing out in a way that's uh, much more nuanced than the kind of like old man yelling at kids on his lawn uh, Mm -hmm. thing that he, it seemed like he originally was saying. Um, And it is a more nuanced take. Basically what Scorsese is saying in the op-ed, and it's, it's, it's not really one sustained argument. It's not really a, um, a philosophical argument. It's more just, kind of the classic uh, opinion column you might see um, in like an artistic uh, section of a newspaper. Um, And Scorsese basically says that he thinks cinema um, has an artistic um, sort of mode to it. And that has to do with, he describes things like challenging who you are, challenging your preconceptions, detailing the unexpected, um, uh, but lots of like kind of metaphorical terms, but gets at this idea that that art is somehow, um, you know, coextensive with entertainment, but also has a different dimension to it, right? I think it's important to note the fact that um, when people talk about art as being different than entertainment, they're not saying that they are completely mutually exclusive. No one thinks that. I don't think anybody thinks that. It's more just like there are certain films that are great in virtue of their artistic value. Um, and they're also entertaining, but their their sort of greatness is the artistic value. And there are some films that are really fun and and great in terms of their or in virtue of their entertainment value, right? And you can kind of mm-hmm. distinguish uh, which is which. And you can say certain films have both, and you can t- talk about the degrees to which they have both, and in virtue of what parts of the films and which modes of the films they have those things, right? So you can make some sort of distinction between artistic value and entertainment value. And I think that's basically what Scorsese is getting at. Uh, and pointing out that, and he even mentions the fact that like Hitchcock films are, are some of the ones that he thinks affected him most artistically, even though really they're kind of like the early, like the original version of Marvel films in terms of being like entertainment spectacles and being events for the culture mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, and so he gets into a lot of these kind of nuanced ideas. And then he ends the op-ed by basically talking a bit about um, the kind of social political aspects of, of uh, or political economical aspects of, of cinema these days, uh, talking about how basically um, sort of franchise films have crowded out the existence of independent and original artist films. Um, mm. And that he bemoans that and he's really sad about that. And he wants to encourage people to support uh, independent cinema uh, and not make it so that he has to go to Netflix to make the Irishman. Um, but can actually, you know, he and others can can do big films like that and and not have to go to and actually have them produced for the theater rather than for the small screen originally. 
Yeah, because when you go to when you go to Netflix, you're not just using the money of financiers. You're using that platform money and that technology, that that techno industry money, which for people who don't work in the film industry, pretty much everybody who works in the film industry on the production side knows that if you want to lose money, you go into filmmaking. That's literally what they say. These are producers who say this. So mm. like there's a great advantage of being able to go to Netflix, but there's also the disadvantage because you lose the theatricality of like live theater, you know, or not live theater, but cinematic theater. Yeah, I'd imagine it's something like, you know, making a um, a video game and then having it have to be originally ported onto like a smartphone or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, not, it's not ideal. It's not what you're looking for um, as an artistic medium. So anyway, uh, there's some, you know, qualms I have about the op-ed. It's not, it's not necessarily a really sound argument overall, although I don't, I don't think it's intended to be. Um, it's more mm-hmm. meant to be persuasive than anything else. Um, but then some of the, the response to it on the internet, I think it's just been kind of awful. And it's really funny to me that people kind of come out of the woodwork um, to basically kind of, I, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily like a bad faith thing. I think people just, whenever they see an older white man get grumpy about something or get critical of something, then it's like the pitchforks come out. Uh, or maybe it's just really? like man in Are, general. Um, I, I hadn't seen any of this blowback. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of blowback by people. Um, and some of it's, you know, coming from the, the like, let's not disparage um, this popular thing, right? Because it's, because uh, it's popular and that's fine. Like whatever uh, people want to get into their like, I like this thing. You can't tell me I, I can't like it as if the person, as if Scorsese is saying you're not allowed to like something. Like obviously he's totally fine with that. Art is um, subjective, bro. <laughs> well, that's, that's the thing that really pisses me <laughs> off, man. And we've talked about this before, right? Like it's literally objects. Um, <laughs> but like the non-cognitivists come out, right? And they're like, aesthetic judgments are just boos and yays and shit like that. That's what non-cognitivists sound like. Always sound like that. They always sound like a dude from Jersey who's just had six beers. Um, mm. And that's just, I just, I can't, I can't deal with that shit, man. Don't, don't be reducing aesthetic judgments to boos and yays, right? It's wrong. Mm. Look up the embedding problem, all right? Non-cognitivism is false. These are cognitive judgments. True and false judgments. Now, you want to argue about those? Argue about those. That's fine. Right? Scorsese's argument is not a really good or sound argument. Like, break it down that way if you really wanted to, you know, show off how much you dislike Scorsese or think that old man yelling on his lawn thing is going on. But don't, like, reduce the entire debate into, you know, rallying for your team. Like, that, that's some bullshit, right? If you like Marvel films, you like Marvel films. No problem, right? I spend way too much time caring about basketball and a lot of the, like, dumb drama shit in basketball. If someone came out and was like, this is a waste of time, you should spend more of your time doing things of value, I'd be like, you know what? You're right. No problem. I'm still going to do it, though. That's fine. Just don't get on this like high horse and be like, I'm going to create this philosophical argument, which makes this whole thing we're doing completely worthless and stupid. And also, the vast majority of things that people do all the time are going to be completely misguided. <laughs> that's, just, that's just not cool, bro. Don't do that. I mean, the thing that I don't get is why are people clamoring so hard to preserve the the term cinema or film for something that doesn't need that categorization in order to earn clout, right? But for some reason, they have they've almost like cathectically imbued the word film or cinema 
so much that if the thing that they then have some other type of attachment to is not included in that category, then they feel like personally attacked, that that somehow denigrates the value that they give to this object. Like, you don't think of a TikTok video as cinema. Now, you may love the fucking TikTok video because it might be really cool and ingenious. Maybe this person did something great. Maybe it's funny. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe the creator is really talented. Da-da-da-da-da-da, whatever. But you don't give a shit if I walk up to you and I'm like, hey, I just want you to know that's not cinema, <laughs> you know, like as much as you you could qualify the shit out of it and be like, well, it's a TikTok film, non-standard five second short film, but use whatever fucking qualifications you want so that you can maintain some sort of, I don't know, categorization that you're comfortable with. It's still not fucking cinema, right? So I don't, again, understand why you care not you, Troy, but why people care so much about needing to preserve the categorization of these Avenger products or these superhero products, these Marvel products within that domain. Like, what is won and what is lost? And that is what I think is interesting. And and so when I see the hubbub of them like freaking out about somebody being critical of it, what I would want to do is I'd want to kind of like unpack this and say, well, what is this larger category that you're afraid that you're losing your grip on? And why are you so invested in that? Because I'll be honest, like I don't think the Marvel films are cinema. And I had a conversation with Kier about this when the Endgame, was that the last uh, Avengers film came out and here, you know, uh, for people who are listening, we did the, this podcast called, I dig this movie. We still might do it. I don't know. We had, we didn't do it ever since I got sick, but called, I dig this movie Kier talked about this, has written about this on like public Facebook posts and stuff like that about how he thinks that the Avenger films, the last two in particular, how they're not cinema and that they signal like the end of cinema in a lot of ways. And he's not saying that in a sense that he doesn't like them. He likes them. He likes them enough. They're good products for what they are. You get invested in the characters. Um, they build characters. They create worlds. They create tension and drama and there's affect and all kinds of things. But is it cinema? Is there something qualitatively different between The Searchers and Avengers Endgame? And for Kier, yes. And I would imagine for Scorsese, yes, as well. So the question is, is what is it that we use to categorize? Now, are they just differences of degree? Or is there a sense in which differences of degree even are so great that we then start moving into different qualitative designations altogether? And so I just don't understand why people are trying so hard to cling to this categorization, you know? I think it's just it's obvious that there's a sense in which they see an evaluative uh, judgment there that isn't necessarily there. Like it's a when you say something isn't cinema, you're denigrating it. You're claiming something else is superior and you're telling someone that they're childish for engaging in it. And that probably comes with the sort of, you know, um, maybe subconscious sense in which someone feels like this is a child's thing that I'm doing. And um, if someone calls me out on it, like, you know, my, I'm gonna, like the, the attack claws are going to come out or whatever. And that's just not, no one's claiming that. Like, um, does anybody like yell at LeBron James and say, you play a child's game for millions of dollars? Like, <laughs> I mean, maybe some people do that, but no one cares. Like, is it true? Kind of. Yeah. It's a child's game, but who cares? Like it's entertaining and it's fun and people like it. It's not a big deal if it's a child's game or not it's in this, like some historical sense or whatever. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's a sense in which it, it feels to some people like they're being attacked. Um, when it's, it's like the not- world series of poker, man, is that a sport? 
It's on fucking ESPN. Is it a sport? A lot of people would say, sure, it's a sport, I guess. It's a fucking game, man. It's a card game. It's not a sport. Are they athletes? Like, yeah, they have great <laughs> mental concentration. You have to sit there for long periods of time. They have to be very adept at mathematics. Obviously, poker nowadays is purely just like a mathematical game. Um, so is it is it a, is it some kind of athletic endeavor? I mean, maybe if you stretch the definition of athletics. But again, like, so then who's an athlete? Is a bowler an athlete? Is a curler an athlete? And then, and then, even then, like, then who's a better athlete? Well, gymnasts are like the most athletic in terms of like all around athletics, based on how you define athletics in one way. So then, that means that is a fucking gymnast just in a different degree of athletic category than a fucking Daniel Negreanu, great poker player. I, I mean, this is where categorization kind of gets slippery, but. I think people need to chill the fuck out and not hold on so tightly to these categories. And I think actually what it shows is their own neurosis, right? Like you just even kind of hinted at it where you're kind of like, no, if if they feel that insecurity, it's that they have somehow invested into these categories. Why don't we just think about things in terms of like post-cinema and let's be kind of okay with that. And it can still be good and fun and valuable and culturally important and popular and instructive, et cetera, et cetera. But does it need to be categorized as cinema? I mean, maybe I just am not committed to things in life, and so I just don't give a shit about the category. <laughs> so I don't this is care. This like, coming into the conceptual sphere. <laughs> yeah, exactly, man. Like, who gives a fuck, dude? Call it whatever the fuck you want. Go see them, and don't worry if Martin Scorsese doesn't categorize them as cinema. And don't even worry, even if he comes out and says he doesn't like them. Boo-hoo, motherfucker. Just be like, okay, you're going to die soon, old man. And then whatever. <laughs> Like, why does it matter? People fucking relax. Smoke some weed, motherfuckers. That's all I got to (laughs) say. Chill out. You know, I I agree. I think the important point is just whatever, you know, categorizations you want to use or however slippery you think concepts can be, it doesn't really matter. The important thing is there is a strong qualitative difference um, between Marvel films and the kinds of things Scorsese is talking about. And that's, I don't think anybody denies that really, right? Um, it's like, let's just point out the qualitative difference and talk about it. It doesn't have to be denigrating to be that, right? right. To just ignore the differences is obviously um, kind of fruitless, right? And if you care about these things a lot, you think you'd want to think about them more. Yeah, and even if somebody does denigrate it, then you don't have to engage in the level of affect that has been established by these other people. You can then stop it and you can be a productive force and be like, even though I don't denigrate it, I see what Scorsese is saying. Is there something interesting that we can productively use with his words? That is how you can be really kind of critically, uh, like productive and critical and smart and constructive. That's what I think. I mean, but fuck it. What do I know? That said, dude, uh, I'm going to engage in some like practical contradiction here and be like, do you remember seeing the original Sam Raimi Spider-Man film in like 2002 or whenever it was? I mean, I, I, I've seen it. I don't. Yeah. But go ahead. Yeah. With Tobey Maguire, that one. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I remember that film being really good. And for some reason, even though it's not like, a, I think a great film or anything, it stuck with me for a long time. And I, I, yeah. I just randomly like think about it. At certain points, it's a really good movie, it's a well done film. And then I think about that and compare it to the last few Avengers films, and just nothing from those movies sticks with me literally nothing. Um, mm. And so, yeah, it seems to me that even in the, in the superhero genre from like the early days and even stuff like The Dark Knight and, and things like that, there's that strong qualitative difference has, has 
um, undergone even in the superhero genre, I think over the last you know decade and a half. Um, so yeah, I think kind of attuning yourself to that difference and thinking about it is important. It doesn't have to necessarily be denigrating or telling people that they're bad or childish for liking these movies, but just kind of pointing out that there is a difference here and thinking about why it's the case and what effect it has on cinema. Like that's that's just what it means to engage in like artistic criticism in the objective Absolutely. sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then of course, I think the real critical element of all of this is then, and I haven't read the article um, yet, but I'm sure he touches on this a little bit, but it's something that we've talked about. It's something that many others have talked about is the financial model that is really driving the big blockbuster films, mm-hmm. right? You know, you have a lot of people who blame like Jaws basically as being the film that ruined cinema because that's when you get the end of new Hollywood. So you no longer do you have, you know, independent auteurs and now you just have these money machines, the big blockbuster machines that drive the cinematic industry. And so you get that only intensified to the hilt in the age of financialization. Obviously, Jaws comes out in the, at the beginnings of financialization, but I'm talking about financialization in full, in full, full steam ahead. So you're talking about massive returns now, films that can issue a massive uh that, that can be used as derivative products um, that are being financed by financiers who are engaged in other elements of financial speculation. And they become elements of like speculation really is what they are, you know? And so, yeah, you could make a $60 million film and, um, and then maybe get $75 million or you can make a film for $300 million, And even if you only make $700 million, you've still made a shitload of money. And of course, but the goal now is to always break a billion, right? And so that's, that's the, the the whale that you're always trying to capture. And so that changes what content is created because it's got to be a billion-dollar film and then it's got to be a franchise that has action figures and sequels and video games and, you know, the you know uh, cereal box covers and costumes for Halloween and stuff like that. So it's got to be billion-dollar industries now that are ultimately going to drive the industry. So the cinematic industry, the film industry. And so that is, is I think, what becomes the more interesting, problematic, and... Um, I would say, robust area for, for analysis and concentration. And then thinking about it from that perspective, then I would ask this. If I'm going to grant myself all the negative critiques that I would have about how these are just like financial products of speculation, um, are they then cinematic pieces? Are they films? Or are they just simply financial instruments? You know, And that, I think, would be a much more interesting approach to the analysis. Yeah, and it's funny when you you think about um, you know kind of recently it's been it's been burgeoning and people are getting worried about the notion that you know, China's you know, slowly becoming a bigger market than the U.S. and eventually will outstrip it um, for you know cinema for American films, and so this has affected the fact that you know you don't see Chinese antagonists in major films anymore, mm-hmm. and there's often a subplot of, that involves someone who's who's Chinese who does something heroic or is in some sense like a side protagonist or China somehow gets involved as a side protagonist um, to kind of, you know, placate viewers there and make it marketable in China. And it's like people get sometimes get worried about that, thinking about how these um, this marketization is affecting uh, the content of the films. And it's like, motherfucker, what do you think has been going on for the last 30 years? <laughs> Just because yeah. now it involves people who look a little different. We're getting all worried about it. Like this is this this logic has existed and has been dominating you know, big budget cinema for much longer than the last you know five years. 
Yeah, I got a buddy who's really into some of these books that have been written about how the CIA has used cinema and stuff like that. And I haven't gotten into any of this. Have you read in, in, in any of that stuff? No, I'm vaguely familiar with that idea. No. Yeah, and I mean, he's basically like, look, it's not even subtle. They're very explicit about this. They use, uh, you know, they, they have people who are producers, financiers, writers, and stuff like that to make films like Top Gun. Top Gun is literally a film that was made... Uh, with the help of the United States Navy, for example, right? And something along, I can't remember what the number is, but like the enrollment numbers in the U.S. Navy, I think in the military in general, but in the U.S. Navy in particular, increased like X amount after the release of Top Gun. And it's like measurable or something like that. And obviously maybe there's a correlation causation thing going on there, but it's pretty much assumed that that had a positive impact on the image of being a, a naval aviator or the image of the Navy more generally. The well, same thing happens in military. video games too, right? In the Call of Duty games. Oh, hell yeah. Totally. Right. So, I mean, then, then that makes you think, then, then what is a film is a film. It's much more than just a story. It's much more than just, you know, these parameters that we might tend to think about. And we need to start expanding on those things. And then when you start thinking about that in the age today of marketization, like you were saying, in the age of financialization, where everything is just a product for speculation, then what the fuck is an Avenger film? Is it really cinematic or is it just some sort of cultural product to, um, you know, get people to spend more money. And, and then we actually kind of similar to Chomsky's argument in manufacturing consent where, uh, you know, like where the readership aren't the, uh, uh, aren't the customers, but we're the product that's sold similarly here, like the people who go to see the film and who buy the products, we're not the actual customers. We're the product that's sold to the financiers of the future who are going to speculate big by investing three, four hundred million dollars. So then it turns into a financial product in a completely different way, right? It inverts the order, the hierarchy, mm -hmm. right? We tend to think of ourselves as being the customer. We're not the customer. We're the fucking product that the, that, the, that the studio can sell to the financier to say, look, we have projections on pre-sales, foreign pre-sales in China and Nigeria and in Bollywood to the tune of half a billion dollars. Therefore, you need to give us $300 million to make this film because we can already guarantee a return on your investment. You know, that's a totally different logic. Yeah. I mean, um, do you think that, uh, that the LSD industry, um, big hallucinogenic, is financing Gaspar Noe films? <laughs> oh it must man it must <laughs> that and the dmt and the fucking ketamine the k-hole culture because what is he what does he smoke in enter the void it's dmt isn't remember. it i don't remember i'm pretty sure it's dmt that he smokes in enter the void which gives him that like uh that crazy trippy experience before he ends up getting killed yeah but yes that as well All right, so should we move on to talking about uh, Parasite? Yes, let's keep this film discussion going. Yeah, good film episode. I hope your sticky leaves is a film episode. Otherwise, you're going to kill the continuity here, dude. Oh, God damn it. Okay, I'll think about something I can change it to during this conversation. So uh, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite um, has been getting, I mentioned uh, back in the cold open, that uh, it's been getting quite a bit of buzz for a foreign film, first of all. And then secondly, a foreign film, which is basically a drama. I guess there's some, there's some thriller elements to it, but it's mostly like a family drama. Um, although, of course, Bong Joon-ho always kind of, you know, mixes genres uh, in these really kind of like Frankenstein ways, which are wonderful. But um, I'm at least surprised at how much buzz it's getting in the mainstream press. Even kind of, you know, push for like a best picture, not in the Oscars and stuff like that. And I guess mm -hmm. Roma 
Roma got that um, last year or two years ago, whatever that was. But yeah. um, I guess that seemed a little different given that Quadrone kind of already had this like dominant status in American cinema, having done like Gravity and stuff like that. And certainly, even right. though Bong Joon-ho has done English language films, like Oak John Snowpiercer, those were nowhere near as big as Gravity or, you know, having Sandra Bullock and George Clooney in it and stuff like that. So this right. seems a little bit different than that, would you think? Totally. I mean, I do I, I do think that part of the success is because Okja was big on Netflix and because Snowpiercer had, uh, you know, a leading Hollywood sex symbol in it. And then it also had a successful run on Netflix as well. So I feel like as a director, his star is on the rise. And so that probably contributes to its popularity. Then, of course, it does really well at Cannes and it wins the Palme d'Or. And then it just dominates the film circuit. It came to Sydney and it won the top prize at Sydney Film Fest as well. So it's got tons of critical praise. But then I think even audience enjoyment really has just spread as well. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I have had reach out to me on Twitter or to Wisecrack on Twitter or reviews that I've read, blogs that I've read that are telling people who have seen it in a festival to other people around the world like, you have to see this movie. You have to see this movie. So, you know, there's just so much momentum around it. So when it finally does get its theatrical release in the States or in the UK, I don't know if it's out yet in the UK, it makes sense that it would be kind of supported by all of these other various, like, momentum factors. Yeah, and I think those all contribute to it. That said, I mean, winning the Palme d'Or can means nothing when it comes to, like, American mainstream success, success, right? There have been winners of that prize that have not, even probably been That's released um, <laughs> That's in American true. cinemas. Like, didn't Win Shakes the Barley uh, win the Palme d'Or? Damn fucking straight it did. Yeah, I mean that. One of my favorite movies ever. Yeah, it's a great movie. It's even like quasi in English, <laughs> not the way Americans would think of it. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, that that film had like you know, no effect on like uh, mainstream cinema. At least I don't remember it having any effect. No, you're right, it didn't. So, yeah, it's, it, it just seems to me like there's something about this film. Like, it's got that je ne sais quoi about it that it's making it affect audiences in a way you could not predict from the sum of its parts, right? Um, well, do you think it's the political and social climate? I, like, I, I want to believe that, don't you? <laughs> I mean, I, I do think that's what it is. I mean, like, okay, we talked about this. Remember when we did our Joker episode and I said, you were talking about the stairs and I said, you want to know a film that does the stairs better? Mm-hmm. And I said, Parasite. Yeah, dude. Right? And and there's something about how, I think you could actually even read these two films together and you could say, oh, yeah. the film that leftists want Joker to be is actually the film that Parasite is. Yeah. I mean, I think it's way more than that. I think it's its ambitions are even bigger than Joker's were. Hundred percent. Even as a side effect, it kind of out Joker's Joker. And that's not because Joker's a bad film. It's not a bad film, I don't think. Um, but Parasite's just a wonderful film in so many different yeah. ways. Which is what, you know, I referenced this before, but um Umberto Eco once said that, you know, he was referring to literature, but any sort of you know, story-based, narrative-based art is uh, a great a piece of that is a machine of interpretation or a machine for interpretations. And I don't think that he meant by that, uh, this is so vague and ambiguous that you can do whatever you want with it. But no, it actually has a productive quality to it that makes you churn out interpretations 
that aren't necessarily contradictory mm-hmm. or ambiguous, um, but that gives you so much more to work with than mm-hmm. you know lesser pieces do. And when I saw Parasite, I walked out of the film and I thought, I have no idea what I just saw, but I want to I want to think about it for like three straight days. <laughs> mm. um, and you can do that because not only is it like enrapturing, like you're just you're it, you know there's a the thriller element to it and a mystery element to it and a um and everything twists. else. Yeah, big twists and stuff and like that. And there's humor and there's there's love relationships and there's friendships and there's very I know this this almost has no meaning to it, but there's a, a, a real human element to it. I, I just mean interpersonal. There's a lot of interpersonal stuff going on. That's, um, the, that's the thing, dude. There's so many yeah. films out there that are trying to capture the sense of, of the social, right? And do some social criticism, which of course Joker was, was trying to do as well. Um, and sometimes the problem with that can be that it's bloodless. That's basically mm. just like reading a philosophical essay. But you know, in you know, less clear form. Um, but it's important to have an aspect of social criticism, right? What I think this film gets so well is you can talk about the social without involving the social as a character in the film at all, hmm. right? You can talk about, um, you can do social critique through the lens of like six people, right, or seven Two people, families. Yeah, these two families. And this film is the opposite of Bloodless. It's so effective in the you know, effective sense. And yet also has this like, super strong, you know, huge social universal element to it. And I said, you know, I want to believe that it's the social political element of it that people are grasping onto. And I really hope that it is. I, I don't have, you know, this is an empirical question really, but I want to think that and I hope that there's a sense in which people see this. And even though you know, Americans oftentimes aren't able to connect with like, you know, uh, East Asian cinema in this way. It's, it's a universal film. This is, these are experiences that everybody can grab onto, um, no matter who they are. And I think the film was made, you know, Bong Joon-ho has this kind of, I think, universalist element um, to him in all his films. Um, and, I, and I want to think that that's, that's the element that people are grasping onto. The universal so, singular, right? Or singular universal. Right. This thing, yeah, exactly. So, so at uh, Sydney Film Fest, he was here introducing the film, and he came out on stage and he said, "You know, people constantly ask me, what does the title mean? What's the parasite? Who's the parasite? What is parasite? You know?" And he the said, "Parasite of the honestly, friends we made along the way, dude." He said, "Honestly, this is just a family film," and he walked off stage. <laughs> <laughs> and. As funny as that might be, because there's obvious irony in that, it is just a family film in some ways, right? But it's precisely what you said. It's the singular universal. It's that it's that you can look at a family. You could look at two families in particular and their interactions from different sides of the track, let's say, or from different levels of uh, of ascension and descension on the stairs or the social ladder even, which would be more kind of in line with the visual motif that he employs. And and you can say that we can look at these two families and we can derive from that so much about the status of South Korea, so much about the history. I mean, they even have a bit where they're talking about the newscasters in North Korea, right? And how they talk and stuff like that. And I think there's actually a lot of interesting political stuff going on there as well, <laughs> right? 
Um, but you can look at this like what kind of food do they eat? Where do they shop? Um, there's reference multiple times to uh, different people have this cake store that goes bust. The father of the, the of the Kim family is that what they're called? The Kim family. Um, mm-hmm. he, he has a cake shop that goes bust, and then also the guy who's down in the basement. He has a cake shop. He mentions that his cake shop goes bust, and apparently this was like a really big deal in Korea in like 2010, 2013, something like that, where like this industry completely just collapsed, right? And so a lot of like small businesses, small retailers completely went under. And um, and so like, but you can derive these, these larger economic things, but also just understand that someone's small business just got destroyed and the impacts that will have on a family in terms of now you've got loans and now you don't have money to bring in and a steady income. And, um, and then what kind of pressure is that going to put on you in the relationship with your wife? And do you still love your wife? And then you have the rich family the park family and there's this amazing bit where uh the father turns around to him he's driving he's driving mr park around and you know he's kind of teasing about the wife and he's like but you still love her right and mr park's like yeah yeah we'll call it love right and so it's like even that this rich family that is supposed to be held up as the ones who like the mother says you know they have all the the cracks are all ironed the creases are all ironed out and even they have cracks right they're the rich family but they still have their cracks right and so there's just so much going on at the interpersonal at the social at the political at the economic level going on and it's just a family film i mean not just a family film but it is a family film and uh and i think that's one that's the kind of that's a demonstration of what it means to be a masterful storyteller is to be able to to do both to be able to have like you say, to avoid bloodlessness while at the same time aiming towards the universal and the abstract. And that's amazing. Yeah, dude. I mean, think about like Snowpiercer, right? Um, If ever there was like a purely structuralist film, right? Um, Like doing structural critique, it's something like Snowpiercer. And it's a really good and fun and entertaining and thoughtful film, I think. Um, But it does have some of that element of bloodlessness, right? And so it kind of has to have that really nasty shock at the end. Of the movie. Because it's kind of just a parable almost. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, I mean, the ultimate structural uh, storytelling mode is like the parable, right? Um, yeah. Because they're just really like archetypes. The and, yeah. Yeah. Which, which they're is not fine. like humans. There's nothing bad about They're that. just placeholders. Yeah. But if you, can, if you can achieve making a film that's effective and is about small scale things and that makes you feel strongly all these different emotions and then use that to point towards, to point towards like the structural critique. Uh, that's just that's what the great films do, right? And there's so few that can really achieve right. that. I, I know a lot of people have said that something they found refreshing about the film is that the rich people aren't demonized. I thought that was really yeah. interesting that I've heard that from several different uh, sources that I've read and heard. And this isn't like necessarily like from conservatives, right? This is from liberals and left, you know, people of the left, generally speaking. And I thought that's really interesting because I think it points to this notion that. We have so many films that are trying to get at this idea of like how wealth inequality and political inequality affect the relations between individuals in um, a society. And that's obviously you know, true, and we should you know, speak about that. But I think there's something to the degree of people being kind of exhausted at the idea of having like, you know, the, the, the it's a wonderful life type, you know, set up with like the evil um, rich person and the good, humble, poor people um, squaring off in some like you know battle for ultimate power in society. And as much as you know, there's there's truth to that, obviously, in the structural critique there. Um, it's missing something, right? It's missing something about how 
our relations with each other are affected by social and structural conditions. And well, that's why I think the name the name parasite is probably best read as being read at, about the relationship, a parasitical relationship. It's a, it's a relational term. Is, you can't be a parasite exactly. by yourself. Exactly. Exactly. Which means that it is is everywhere. Like everyone is being parasitical insofar as they are manifestations or deputies, let's say, for the logic of parasite, which is that ubiquitous kind of macro category. And yeah, I a hundred percent I said this in the Wisecrack podcast. The reason that I think this film is so beautiful is that it doesn't preach at you, right? Like it's clearly critical. And it's clearly trying to draw out some of the anxieties of economic precarity and economic inequality. But at the same time, it's not somebody standing on their soapbox beating you over the head with their political ideology. Yeah, 100%. Um, Okay, so I wanted to get your opinion on this because I'm still trying to deal with why I find this this idiom in the film so powerful. The idea of smelling comes throughout the film, right? Um, uh, Park, the, the 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 father, the rich father, he several times in the film smells Mr. Kim um, and references the idea that certain kinds of people, people who use the subway or who live in the poor neighborhoods, smell a certain way, right? And it's just, you know, kind of uh, innately disgusting. Um, but they deal with it, right? It's just like, you know, the thing you deal with to get good help or whatever. Um and it's like the only hint you really get of like a, a real dark side of Park, right? What did you think about that that re- reoccurrence throughout the film of the? Well, that's the trigger that really ultimately sets off yeah. him. So it's obviously killing important. him at the yeah. end. So, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of took that as being you know kind of like no matter what, you will never get that stench of poverty off of you there's the bit where the son um the poor son i can't remember his name right now kevin we'll call him that's his american name that he uses in the house he's with the daughter at the birthday party and he's looking out the window at the birthday party and he says you know do you think i'll ever fit into this setting and i think the idea is is that even he is aware that he won't because then previous to that there's the bit where they're all drunk and they're sitting downstairs in the living room right and they're talking about how like if he marries the daughter, then this will be his house and they're planning for it. But then he's like, oh, yeah. But then they're like, but you'll have to like hire actors to be your parents, yeah. to be the in-laws. Because <laughs> you can't have your real parents do it. So, again, there's always this disconnect. He's never going to authentically have him and his family. And I think it's important. That it's the family unit that is central up until the very end. Um, but the family unit is so central. So he'll never – his family will never be brought into that world. He will never be – he will never be able to bring them into that world fully. Even if he fits into the setting, um, he will never get that stench off of him, right? No matter what. Like even if he were to marry her and play this charade for the next 30 years or whatever, that stench will remain. And I think that's what sets off Mr. Kim to kill Mr. Park at the end when Mr. Park rolls the guy over and has to get the car keys and he plugs his nose because the stench is so, so bad, right? And that's the boiling point. That's it. It's – that's – that's the unconscious rage that Fanon talks about of um, of the colonized because it has been repressed and and suppressed and they have they have stayed in their lane and they've accepted their subordinated role but eventually it just bursts forth right it can't be contained any longer and I think that 
the smell is like the return of the repressed. You can repress it. You can put it down in the basement. You can put it down the stairs. You can plug your nose. You can ignore it, but you can't ever fully get rid of it, and it will come back. And the way that it comes back here is it bursts out in violence, and that's what happens when Mr. Kim kills Park. Yeah, that's a, a common thing, right? Even in, in social unrest is, you know, milk rises by 10 cents or train fares increase by 10 cents or whatever, right? And then the news right. will say that happened. And so there's a social unrest that was caused. And it's like, yeah, I mean, that was the efficient cause, like the proximate cause <laughs> of this happening, right? But that's clearly the boiling over of so much else that's gone on. And I think it was brilliant to have that be the moment since it was a recurring thing. And I think it's just so powerful, right? Smell is such a powerful disgust um, experience, right? There's well, nothing remember, else that you, that you experience too, as disgusting as much as a spell. Well, yeah, and remember too at the beginning, the infestation of bugs that the Kims have in their house. What kind of bugs are they? They're stink bugs. Oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. Remember, yeah. he says damn, the damn stink bugs, and so they get fumigated. And I think that's really symbolically rich. Yeah, they get and accidentally have, fumigated. <laughs> yeah, they get accidentally fumigated. That's right. Um, there's a lot of fucking humor in this film too, which is there any filmmaker that can weave together like drama and tension and thriller and then just laugh out loud hysterical <laughs> humor? Like, oh God. But yeah, so that's it. So it's stink bugs. So the notion of smell is set up from the very beginning. Sorry to cut you off. No, yeah, and the, and disgust. And speaking of like laugh out loud, the funniest part of the film for me is when um, the the daughter of the Kims uh, they get home and after the flooding has occurred, right? And like the the sewer is bursting forth through the toilet, and so to stop it, she just sits in the toilet and like smokes a cigarette while like all this nasty <laughs> sewage is blasting up through the toilet underneath her. Right. I was laughing so hard. It's such a weird, ridiculous moment in this film, like like completely cartoonish. Um, yeah. And it, it, is it common, do you think, in, in South Korea for these toilets to be like raised almost to the ceiling? That was such a bewildering um, shot, or, like production design choice for me. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. If we have any, you know, native Koreans or people who have spent a lot of time in Korea, let us know because I've never been and I haven't been able to ask any of my Korean like colleagues or friends about that. So I don't know. You know, another thing I loved about, I mean, just, I mean, there's so many things you can talk about in terms of like production choices here. Uh, the two homes, how yeah. they're designed. And I, and I read that they actually designed the homes on a lot. These are not pre-existing homes that they use. They designed them on per, every piece of it on purpose in a lot. And Crazy, that, huh? yeah, it's totally nuts. And um, both of them, well, it seems like the, the um, Parks home is much more heavily windowed than the Kim's home. And yet the window in the parks home, the big rich home, has this vista of like a painting, right? Like a, like a painting of nature, right? With all the trees and, um, and just beautiful green in the sky. Uh, and then the window is much smaller in the Kim's home, but they go straight into the street and everyone can see into it. There's no privacy. But so, yeah. To the point where like a person keeps coming by to piss on, <laughs> like, on their window basically. There's just no privacy there, even though it's it's less heavily windowed than the park's home. This is a very strong element of the way the homes depict the relations people have to have with one another. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I I hadn't thought about that before. I, I wonder if that's that there's something also then about the state of the impoverished as being exposed, right? And I think. I think that kind of also fits when the rainstorm comes, 
their their home gets flooded. So a rainstorm, a natural a natural event is a disaster for the poor. It exponentially affects the poor, the poor neighborhood as the water goes downhill. But the people uphill, the parks, for them it's a game. Their kid is sitting out in his fucking tent yeah. having fun in the rainstorm, you know, while the parents talk dirty to each other and finger each other on the sofa, right? Yeah, I was almost offended by how like frivolous they were with the rain. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's this time to, to play games. Yeah. People's homes you play are being a game destroyed. while while your neighbors are fucking drowning and being completely displaced and they have to sleep in a shelter in a in a gymnasium packed with everybody else because they've just lost everything. But for them, it's a game. And is that not an accurate depiction of what happens uh, between social classes? Not just when a crisis occurs, which exponentially always affects the poor more than it does the rich anyway, but also just in general, like when something that you can think of as being like a nice fun thing where it's raining and you can play in the streets and make sure you got your rain gear on. But nevertheless, there are people who are, you know, experiencing mudslides and the muds are falling, muds falling on top of them and stuff like that. And I'm not saying that mudslides don't affect big houses that are on the hills and shit like that as well. But come on, man, put your house in a different fucking spot. I'm from, I'm from a place where like mudslides were very common too with like the big wealthy homes and shit like that. It happened all the time. And I remember just being like, why are all these homes built there? You know, like it's so <laughs> stupid, but it's because you get a great fucking view, man. <laughs> so that sucks. But then again, you got homeowners insurance and most of the time those homes don't get ravaged. But the people down at the bottom of the hill, they're the ones dealing with the mudslides. They're the ones that have the muds fill up their homes and they they disproportionately, there's an asymmetry here, right? On how things affect the different social classes. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the thing that affected me most, I kind of want to talk about this for a little bit before we like move on. Um, we've talked about this idea of relations with one another and how it's such a strongly relational film, especially between the two families. And I mentioned earlier that you know people have been celebrating the fact that the movie was able to make this kind of structural and social critique without demonizing the rich people um, right. or making them like innately, inherently, intentionally evil people. Um, and I think that what that's really getting at, what's great about the film that I came out of it so excited and jazzed about is that the film basically, I think it was saying, and maybe this isn't intentional, maybe I'm reading it off of it, you can tell me. Um, these two families cannot possibly relate to each other rightly. They are disallowed from having proper relations with one another um, mm. by the social conditions that exist. And that's the parasite idea gets that, right? To live, a parasite has to use somebody else, right? For means and substance. And so the Kims have to sort of see the parks as means to an end, right? A way to get enough money to live because otherwise they have to subsist on like folding pizza boxes, uh, which that was too real for me, by the way, as someone who <laughs> has gotten to the point where they can fold pizza boxes in like three seconds flat. Um, yeah. Uh, so they can't properly relate to the parks, even if they wanted to, right? And so Kevin gets at that, right? When he thinks about wanting to relate to them properly, like wanting to marry their daughter, but that could never really happen, Right. In, a, in, a, in like a proper way. It has to involve incredible deception, right, to ever happen. But the Parks also can't relate to the Kims. They're just, they're just constitutively unable to do so. They only can see them as someone who's being paid um, to help them out, right? And they're parasitical too, right? Like they can't have their lives of Mr. Park going out and uh, working all day and going on business trips, and then um, his wife basically not really knowing how to do 
anything in the home, right? Um, they can't have that life without having people to help them and do all this work that they are not going to do. Um, so they have to be parasitical on each other to live their life. They're disallowed from having proper relations to each other. And that ends up with this incredible violence once it comes to the point where, you know, I thought that even before the smelling incident, it was the uh, park telling Kim, uh, yeah, you don't want to do this whole like, like faux uh, Indian uh, invasion thing mm-hmm. or whatever, but just you're being paid to so just do it, right? Think about it as your work. Right. And it's like, my home was just destroyed. I spent all night in a shelter. Um, and now I have to think about my job as being this kind of demeaning birthday party thing where everyone else here is here because they're a friend, right? But I'm here because I'm a tool, right? For your amusement. And that's just such an obvious way in which that employment relationship is parasitical and it's not respectful of the person as a human being. And that is not a proper relation people should have with one another. And so it ends up in this incredible violence because people can't take that. It's not right. And I thought it was such a brilliant way of capturing that um, without necessarily having to have like the incredible like mob violence of like a Joker, right? There's violence, right? Mm. Um, but that wasn't necessarily, that was more just like, like the topping, right? Than it is like that. And the violence is far more impactful than when Arthur shoots Robert De Niro, I thought. Like, I didn't, I didn't care about their relationship, really. Like, yeah, he's a father figure, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I think I mentioned that in the Joker podcast. But when the man comes out from the basement and stabs and the daughter gets stabbed, and then even when the little boy gets stabbed because the knife goes through, and then when uh, Mr. Kim stabs Mr. Park, I mean, that, like, you're like, fuck! Like, the, the effect of that violent outburst burst was really it was really rooted in the rest of the narrative and so the release was just extremely impactful to me you know and then the frustration of knowing that park won't understand this you won't understand why this happened it will seem like a moment of insanity which in some sense it was right because it wasn't like a planned out thing it wasn't a means to an end as an action, right? Um, but we get it, having viewed the Kim's life. And the Parks will never, they'll never get it. Right? They'll never understand why this really happened. And that incredible cathartic release, but then also that frustration of knowing that we kind of have an insight um, that they can't have. It's, yeah, it's this incredible, like, just position of emotions, right? I have a psychoanalytic reading about this whole thing that you're talking about right now. And I have a question about it. So here's the thing. So you're talking about how it's their relation to one another and that they can never relate to each other immediately. So there's always a mediatory element that um, that conditions their relationship, right? So I have two examples. So the first example is um, Kevin relating to the parks when he first gets his job. And how does he get his job? He has Mrs. Kim sit in on the tutor, the tutorial that he's giving to the daughter. And it isn't because he's a great tutor. It isn't because his English is extremely proficient. It isn't because he has the qualifications. What is the thing that gets her to hire him? It's because he uses the language of like hustle culture. He talks about how taking an exam is like slashing through the jungle. And it's like that grab the bull (laughs) by the horns, make Monday your bitch kind of (laughs) positive 
Gary V kind of shit, right? Like, you got this, girl. You got to fucking crush this shit, right? And then she, like, immediately, and it's a hard cut to her forking over cash. Like, you're hired because you can motivate my daughter, because you are, like, a brand salesman, right? Mm-hmm. So so the way that he relates is because he can he can wear the mask. He can use the, the mediatory brand of, like, late capitalist positivity culture or whatever it is, right? And then similarly, so that's how he can relate to them. He has to like have that as the mediator. Um, and then similarly, or like maybe the the opposite of that is when the parks have sex, the husband makes a comment about how like if she was wearing those cheap underwear, then that would get him really hard, oh, right? Yeah. And so there's something about the that would, fantasy. Yeah, that was a psychoanalytic perversion right there. Yeah, for sure. Right? So there's something about the fantasy of them role playing or her being like a dirty little poor girl from the other side of the tracks wearing cheap underwear and that's going to turn me on so much more it'll make me want to fuck you even more right so there's uh, for both of them there's some sort of mediatory image or fantasy and here's my question then is that mediatory tendency precisely what defines the psychoanalytic reading of what is parasitical that's what's parasitical the fact that you have to have a mediatory relationship and a fantasy to sustain your relation, and that's what ultimately eats at you because it's a deficient image. Yeah, I mean, I, I would qu- take qualms a little bit with the the distinction between immediate and mediate there, just because I mean, all relations are mediatory in some sense. I think it's more like what is right. the, what is the mediator, um, and I think that yeah, I, I didn't think about this, but yeah, the the idea of the of the sexual perversion right is the ultimate example of like using. Um, poor people as basically non-humans, right? Treating them as tools. Um, and that's that's what's wrong about it, right? The mediation is one where you're sort of using the person as a tool, not respecting them as an actual human being um, or as a human person with like desires and ends that are just like yours. And that's the the crucial thing that's wrong. And, and I think that, yeah, the, the psychoanalytic mm-hmm. perversion there that's happening is a great example of that. Like what could, and especially since, uh, if I remember correctly, the Kims are hearing him say that, right? They're underneath the table. They're under the table. Yeah. <laughs> so like they're hearing themselves being being thought of as this like fantasy. Um, yeah, which is which is awful to think about like that contributing towards your own view of yourself um, and how just ashamed you would be having to deal with that. Yeah. yeah is it, is there sure. something – I mean like we might think like, oh, it's cool if somebody uses me as a sex object. But that's when you've kind of like – You've when got you a have trust a relationship. relationship. <laughs> That's right. You already That's have right. a respectful relationship when this is exactly. just a, a thing you both want to do. Exactly. But when you are just simply objectified and you are listening to that, like, I am going to get really hard and I'm going to fuck you. Like, I'm going to penetrate you. I'm going to, I'm going to dominate you um, for my enjoyment and take from you your vitality. And I'm going to suppress the subjectivity of that and completely diminish that for my gain. And that that is what is so perverse about it. And that is what is so interesting. So I almost wonder if like all of these things were meant to read into the buildup of that 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 moment of the signification when Mr. Park holds his nose in disgust of the smell that then causes Kim to kill him. That you're meant to even think of like all of this stuff. Like it all comes floating am, back, yeah. A bad filmmaker yeah. would have had a montage. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. Of his right. mental state, exactly. yeah. 
Um, and you know what was so fantastic? I've been thinking about this a lot since I saw the film. How many times this notion uh, comes across with Park, especially saying how Kim has come close to crossing the line. I think he says the mm. phrase crossing the line four or five times in the film. Mm. It's, it's meant to be repeated on purpose, I think. There's this like strong sense where Park is a fairly nice, kind person, it seems like, right? Um, he treats people generally yeah. pretty well, um, even those you know who are his help. But he talks about staying in their lane a lot. Mm. Like, don't cross the line. There's a problem with crossing the line. And it's not really clear what he means by that. He never states what that is. And we're kind of left to open, uh, open it up to interpretation what exactly he's talking about. But it has to do, it seems like, always with um, doing what you're told to do, doing what you're meant to do, what your purpose is, and not sort of exercising your freedom, right? not pretending you're my friend, not actually engaging me in a way where you can challenge me or my status over you. He never says that, right? There's a strong no. element of, of that being the, the content of crossing the line, which well, it seems innocuous, but not. Yeah, well, it's handled really well in the car, the car scenes with yeah. him and Mr. Kim. There's the one bit where he tells him to keep his eye on the road. It's like, don't get too chummy and look back here too much. Keep your eye focused on what your job is, right? Like, don't... Don't mistake our my jovial laughter here for friendship inequality. Keep your eye on the road. That's the key, right? Because it comes right after this moment where Kim does a favor, or, or seemingly does a favor for Park, even though he's actually deceiving him, right? Um, right. By giving him the card for the for the um, the maid service, uh, and then saying it's you can just tell your wife that you found it, right? So you can get, score some husband points. And so Park laughs, and he's like basically saying thank you. For giving me this favor, the kind of favor that a friend does for a friend, right? Okay. But then immediately Perk has to say, but you're not my friend, right? You're That's my right. Employee. There's that moment of male bonding, but it can't ever be fully equal, right? Like, oh, yeah, let's like, I can earn those husband points. Oh, yeah, bro. Keep your eye on the fucking road. Hold on. Let's make sure we maintain our uh, our power structure here, right? Yeah, exactly. It's handled so well, that scene. Oh, my God. I was so – because it's a normal thing, right? Like, keep your eyes on the road. Like, what's – everyone's – we said it to people all the time. Um, but the context makes that statement just biting. And there's a little bit of a threat. Like, you're right. Park is – he's a very, quote, unquote, nice dude, right? But there's a little bit of a threat, you can tell, when he tells him to keep his eye on the road, right? And you're already feeling tense because – you know, he's talked about crossing the line. You're not sure. You're, And you're also kind of, I think I at least, maybe because I just know this, the, the filmmaker. And so I'm like waiting for something. So I'm like on the edge. I'm like something fucking weird is going to happen or bad is going to happen. And so you're just waiting. So the moments of tension are, are handled so well. And you don't, I, I mean, I don't think you really even know what it is until – like until it finally happens and you're like, what the hell am I watching? Which is why it's so interesting because you think that this might be a moment when something bad is going to happen or someone's going to walk in now and they're going to see something or someone's going to overhear them or, you know, uh, one of the kids is going to see, you know, the Kims like, you know, when Mr. Kim touches Mrs. Kim's butt or something like you're like, something's going to give it away. And that none of that gives it away. You're just waiting for the, the plot to be lost somehow. And so the way that he can maintain that tension um, and then he kind of just pulls you back into the story and it's like, uh-uh, 
I'm, this isn't the reveal yet, you know? And you kind of see that in those moments too. And I think that's kind of also when Park says eyes on the road, that's also you kind of being like, okay, let's just settle back into how things are going to flow here for a bit. I love that you mentioned having seen Bong Joon-ho's films, you're waiting for something like crazy shit to go down, right? Yeah. Um, when, I don't remember who, I think it's uh, Mrs. Kim is the one who discovers the basement, right? Um, because the the previous maid comes down and she's trying to open it up and can't get it open. Well, they kind of so. all go down, they kind of all go down together. Yeah, so. But yeah, but when Mrs. That, Kim is the first one down at the bottom, yeah. Yeah, when it opens and then there's like this like dramatic kind of weird music playing in the background and they're walking down the steps to the basement. What did you think was going to happen? I don't even remember what I thought was going to happen the first time. I remember just going like, what the fuck is going on? I know, right? <laughs> I mean, like, is there like having a seen cult? Bong Joon films? Like, I think there's like a cult or like a monster or like <laughs> dead bodies or like cannibals or some shit. Yeah, I was like waiting for some something huge to happen. <laughs> burial, an ancient burial ground or some shit like that. Like, what is going yeah. on? But yeah. I'm glad it didn't because then you got to have this extra element of we're talking about you know people being unable to relate uh, to each other properly. Um, even the poor people are unable to relate to other poor people properly, right? You want the Kims. And I don't remember the name of the of the previous uh, family who were um, the workers there, but you want them to engage in like solidarity, right? Like, just take the house for yourself, <laughs> right, uh, and share it. That's right. But they're, they're class solidarity, yeah. bro. But yeah, that's just yeah. unrealistic. They're completely unable to do so, right? Like that's they right. have to look rationally. They have to look out for themselves and what they have, and so they're at odds for that reason. They're in conflict um, for reasons that. They can't really surmount, even though you really, really want them to. Scarcity, man. Yeah, that's what it is. Scarcity creates fucking conflict, right? Yeah, I really like that, actually, because I think that makes that adds that other layer of complexity. When the man comes up out of the basement and he attacks uh, the Kims, he doesn't attack the Parks, right? And then, of course, it's because they have tension built up and stuff like that because of how they've been treated and whatnot once once they find out that they're living down there but he comes up and he fights them so you're like whoa dude hold on a second you guys are part of the same class shouldn't you guys be like linking arm in arm and saying like ah fuck the bourgeoisie no that's not how it works right but you understand the resentment yeah it makes sense yes right yeah it's just a really nice nuanced perspective on the consequences of economic and social and class inequality right yeah, I mean, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, it seems like Bong Joon-ho has done the really effective personal, like, inter intrafamilial drama before with, like, Memories of Murder yeah. and Mother. Um, and then he's done, even, like, The Host. I watched The Host last night just to kind of compare the two movies. And even The Host has that, like, intrafamilial stuff. I saw a lot of connections in the family dynamics in The Host with Parasite, mm-hmm. even though The Host is kind of a silly action monster movie. Um, and then he's done the big social critique with Snowpiercer, right? Uh, and maybe a little bit of Okja too. Um, but this this combines them all. It's like the you know the off on the synthesis of those two elements, perfectly captured, right? I mean, yeah, I, I can't imagine. I, I'm really curious to see what he's going to do next, given uh, hmm. just how great this film was. He's going to take a huge like left turn, or kind of stay more in this domain if he could possibly do it again. Um, That'll be super interesting because this definitely feels like a kind of a peak film for someone mm. who's kind of encapsulated their entire career into a film. Mm. And he's pretty young, so fifty. I think. It's not like, yeah, I mean, for a filmmaker, that's really young. 
you know? So you got to think he's probably still got a good, you know, 10 films in him if he takes his time, you know, five, five to 10, somewhere in there, depending on how quickly he turns them out. Yeah, we um, can hope so. And so, I really hope that it means that, you know, South Korean cinema can get more of a, have more impact on, on, on American viewers because well, I don't know what it is in the water there, man, but there's just some crazy, awesome shit that comes out of South Korea. I know, man. I actually just rewatched Old Boy recently for the first time with a friend. And it, what a movie, uh, man. <laughs> gosh, man. Such a fucking movie. Uh, she was traumatized for like, like two days after. I was like, I'm sorry for traumatizing you. She's like, I can't get this damn movie out of my head. I, was like, I know it's fucked up. <laughs> it's fucked up. Um, before we move on, I did want to ask you about the ending of the film, though, because I kind of tend to think I have a way of reading the ending, the, the particularly the, the final kind of like stare into the camera and Kevin's fantasy and the letter that he writes to his father. I have like a way that I think I like to read it, but I wonder what you think about it. Like, what's your interpretation of that? What's going on there? Yeah, what's your take? Well, okay, so my take my take is, so he, he's got this rock, right? The stone, the yeah. landscape stone thing. And um, he holds on to it, and he says something at one point when they're in the gymnasium after they've been flooded out of their home that, like, it follows him wherever he goes. And I imagine that's, like, the haunting of the American dream, the capitalist dream, the Korean dream, right? And... Uh, and then he kind of like submerges it underwater, which I think is kind of like maybe he buries it in under the unconscious, you know, or um, like he doesn't get rid of it, but he's not holding on to it. But nevertheless, it still becomes part of him. And then, of course, the rock is what like doesn't kill him. I mean, it maybe it does kill him. That's what I one one way of reading. It. Maybe he actually does die. And then the rest of the film is just like a fantasy. I don't know. But maybe not um, because he is kind of the protagonist. But maybe not. Let's say he doesn't die. And he actually we just take the film at face value and he just has to have brain surgery and he gets fucked up. But is there still a sense in which there's like a metaphorical death? Because previous to that, all of his activities, his ambition were uh, family oriented. It was about getting the family in there, right? The family was this really tight unit from the very opening scene. It's the family. But at the very end, what he says in the letter is that he's going to forsake family and he's going to forsake having children and everything like that simply so that he can get rich. Now, it's so that he can get rich so he can buy the house so he can free his father. And then, of course, his mother's there with him. Obviously, his sister has died at this point. But nevertheless, he says he's going to forsake his family and having children and stuff like that and getting married simply so that he can get rich. So it's almost like because he's submerged the ethos of the capitalist dream in under the unconscious, it's become part of him now. And now he will do everything in his power simply so that he can get rich. But of course he has to die first. Kevin has to die first. And this new person has to be born that has brain damage. And that's the person who's going to eventually like rise up and then pursue the Korean dream. And then of course, this is all a fantasy as he's talking about this and it pulls in just like slowly on his face, but it's a very neutral stare so there's like both this element of tragedy and also maybe an element of like prosperity or ambition or let's say uh, an element of of hoping for prosperity and wealth, which is what the stone symbolized, um, that you can't ever separate from the tragedy, that like the two of them are intertwined, right? That the ambition and the tragedy go hand in hand in the current capitalist, late capitalist system. That was, that was what I was thinking about it. Yeah, you know, I hadn't really thought too much about that specific part of it but yeah it does seem like you know he doesn't show it in the film but in order for kevin to do that to engage in the sort of ambitious trajectory of his life to get enough money to buy the house he has to forsake not only like his future 
children and stuff, but his own family. Like he can't live in, you know, the in the slums and become rich, right? He has right. to like probably exist away from them and leave them to eventually come back and rescue his father. So there's probably like some alienation that happens there. He the family engages in their grifting activities together as a family unit, right? It's the way their family exists right. with one another. So yeah, he'd have to leave that, right? And kind of um, leave his mother, I'd imagine leave his mother alone in a sense. Uh, it's not said, I'm just kind of speculating. But yeah, you have to imagine there's some like some alienation that happens before the embrace um, at the end when he, when his father comes out of the, out of the basement to be free. And isn't there an irony here? He has to leave his family unit, that tight, social, connected community that he has, who are all grifters, and he has to leave them to really, quote unquote, authentically and let's say honestly make his millions so that he can buy the home. But then we've also just been introduced to this parasitical relationship that even that authentic pursuit itself isn't necessarily like benevolent, right? Yeah, so, and, it, and it makes you wonder if if that embrace is really going to end up being an authentic embrace at that point, or has he changed so much that he's like a different person, right? We all know the experience of you know the kid who goes off to college from a rural area or whatever, and then comes back for Thanksgiving or Christmas or something, and like a different person, and they don't really have an authentic relationship mm-hmm. anymore with their um, with their family. Like that's a it's a stereotype, but it's one that exists, and it's it's a sad one, right? It's one where even amongst good people, it feels like now we're of different classes and we don't have the same interests and the same values and the same mm. even ways of talking. And it's alienating to have that experience. Yeah, and I think that's why like him getting smashed over the head is so interesting because it's almost like he dies. Kevin, yeah, you know, he dies. He's dead. It, the, whoever wakes up out of that coma after the brain surgery is not the same anymore, you know? And that letter is clearly written in a, in a different tone. Even though there's an element of longing for the father and to release the father, it can only be done and realized through em- the em- embracing that parasitical relationship, but from the other perspective, right? Yeah. I mean, isn't it great that you can have such an authentic, effective view of a family of poor people without them being like romantically, like noble savagized? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so yeah. brilliantly done in that way. I love it. Yeah, it's when I see movies like this, it makes this is what m- makes me say that like Marvel films aren't cinema. You know? And and I'm not trying to just shit on the Marvel film. I will see another Marvel film in my life. It will happen and I will enjoy another Marvel film in my life. I'm going to pretty much guarantee it. But this this for me is what cinema should do. It's what cinema can do. It's visually stunning. The acting is unbelievable. It's funny. It hits you in the feels. It is a microcosm of the current state of the world at the moment. And then also, it is a... Bong Joon-ho has said this is the most Korean film he's ever made. It's a story about family and love and loss of love and relationships and marriage and having children. And, I mean, it like almost deals with fucking everything and then at the same time it's entertaining it's fun right (laughs) like like i was in a i was in a theater filled with koreans and it was just amazing because 
obviously they got all the inside jokes and they got all the references that I probably didn't get. But what it did is it just raised the energy of the theater. And I've had a couple of viewing experiences like that where I've been with an audience, like in Scotland when I saw Filth, which is uh, an Irvin Welsh, based on an Irvin Irvin Welsh novel. And um, it takes place in Edinburgh and it's James McAvoy and it's fucking hilarious. And I think even though I may not have gotten the content of all of the inside references and inside jokes, I got the affect of it because I was, you know, with this community that got it. And it was very similar with this as well, that they just raised the level. They just raised the pathos almost, like a communal pathos that tuned us in even more to the activities on the screen. It was amazing. I, I, that, that to me is what a cinematic experience can do. Now, maybe I just... In a different, at a different phase of my life. And so maybe a seven-year-old has that or like someone who's a real big Marvel. See, that just sounds like I'm denigrating it. Like only a child can enjoy the Marvel. I don't mean that. But like like someone who's in really, really, really into the Marvel films, like maybe they have a similar kind of uh, experience because they experience that community pathos as well. And maybe I'll have it when I go see the new, the, the final Star Wars film, you know, or something like that. So it's not that the, the big blockbuster films can't do it. It's just that, there, there seems to be something qualitatively different about what this film can do and does than what a film like Endgame does. You know? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And you know, this community aspect—we're talking about it as being a uni- uniquely like theatrical experience, right? Our cinematic experience. I think that's true. And it's not to denigrate the Marvel films. There, you have a certain kind of communal experience when you go to an opening night Star Wars film or whatever, right? And it's fun, and everyone, you know, gasps at the at certain spots and then last at others. And it's a great feeling. It's wonderful, right? I think it's kind of similar yeah. to going to a sports, going to a game, right? It's mm-hmm. kind of like, but it's, it's purely exterior experience in the sense that it doesn't have the in- interior or interioristic depth that the, this kind of cinema has, where not only do you have this great time with other people and experience something with other people, but you're also affected the same way at the same level of depth as other people. And you don't know that's happening because you're not in their mind, but it is happening. And you can almost like feel that sense in which you're, you're being challenged and ever so slightly changed as a person, your thoughts, your values, your beliefs are being affected by this film because it's so good artistically has that certain artistic value to it. Um, And that's not, it's just not going to happen in a Marvel film, which is fine, but it's not going to happen. And that qualitative difference isn't one of you know being better than the other, or you know you're childish if you don't um, appreciate the artistic value of Parasite or something. Um, but it's a different thing, and we can be attuned to that without denigrating one of the other. Totally. I mean, I think in summation, since my sticky leaves is actually not about film, in summation, what we're saying is, or what we're asking is, would you be a rather would you rather be a man dissatisfied? Or a pig satisfied. Don't even, <laughs> don't even quote Mill up in this bitch. <laughs> I kid, I kid, I kid. Wait, is it the pig from Okja though? Yeah, that's right. It is. It's the pig from Okja. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd rather be that pig. Yeah. <laughs> or was what, it what a pig? What's what the it? what's the Miyazaki film that has the flying pig? Porco Rosso. That one's awesome. <laughs> I'd rather be that pig satisfied. Okay, perfect. Done. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to our next segment, The Sticky Leaves. This is where one of us talks about whatever it is that's giving us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe. So, Austin, 
what's uh giving it to you this week so it's not film related but it's art related i guess it's music related i went to a halloween party thing the other night but it was like a an emo punk hardcore costume party at this hotel here in sydney and it's this it's this like party function organization event thing i don't even know what you'd call it but it's called like ampm emo night and they run it like i don't know once every couple months or something like that but they happen to do it uh for halloween weekend so you know everyone gets all dressed up and stuff like that and they have like emo punk hardcore bands play and uh you know the music is i mean it's better than i thought it was because they're actually established you know, Australian bands and stuff like that that play. So it was actually better than I was expecting it to be. I thought it was just going to be like kind of like local shitty bands, but they were actually really good bands for what they were. And that's not really what my sticky leaves is. My sticky leaves is there was a moment when I was there and it was, I was outside of like the mosh pit area, but I was sitting there with my beer and I was looking and I didn't see a single cell phone in the entire area. And I rem- I was like, I was like, am I just like not noticing them or what's going on? I didn't see a single cell phone. And all I could do in my mind was flashback to when you see picture footage or video footage of like electronic concerts, EDM concerts, and it's all cell phones. (laughs) It's all cell phones. It's only fucking cell phones. And this makes me feel like I have figured it out that EDM is just simply a cultural fucking fad so that people can take pictures. But there's something about rock music that is still, like, granted, you're throwing your body around, so maybe you don't have your cell phone on. I'm not saying nobody had their cell phone, but this is Halloween, man. This is what a night when everyone wants to take pictures of themselves and be self-indulgent because you're dressed all sexy or weird or scary or funny or whatever, and nobody had fucking cell phones. They probably did in the other parts of the bars, and that's great, but when the music was playing, the cell phones were in the pockets, and people were just either listening to the music, holding their beer, or they were throwing their bodies around, and it was wonderful, and I was like, I got really excited, and I was like, well, maybe it's just like now, and like the phones will come out later, and they didn't come out at all. (laughs) It was brilliant, dude, except for when I took my phone out. (laughs) <laughs> to take a picture of the no phones yeah yeah exactly i did i took a picture of the mosh pit <laughs> um but yeah i just i thought it was great and i don't know i i don't know if this is a trend you know that like at punk shows and hardcore shows that there are no cell phones uh and that at like electronic shows and pop shows and stuff like that everyone's got their cell phones out but i would be curious i I, and i kind of like want to attune myself to this now i want to see this now like i'm going to go see like pennywise and strung out here in a couple months and i'm going to pay close attention to what's going on at that show as well because i bet you around the pit people will have their cell phones out but then of course in the pit and maybe it's just simply because you're throwing your body around and shit like that but at you know at edm shows people are dancing like crazy maniacs and everything like that but and just everyone's got their fucking phones out. So maybe there's just something totally self-indulgent. Plus, I just don't really love that kind of music, so I'm going to talk shit about it, and I'm going to use this as my excuse to justify why <laughs> rock music is better. That's so funny, yeah. dude. I had kind of the opposite experience on Halloween. Um, I went to a, a show that was a bunch of cover bands who uh, were playing, like, there was a, a Buzzcocks cover band and uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds cover band. and Oh, fun. Uh, I forget what else, but they actually like, dressed up as the band. Like I saw mm-hmm. the I saw the guy who was Nick Cave walking around before they went on. I was like, that dude is Nick Cave. <laughs> he had like, <laughs> and if you've seen Nick Cave's haircut, he's the only person who rocks that haircut in the world on purpose. 
Um, so it was very obvious. And uh, the bands were actually really good, just like your experience. I was surprised at how they were actually like, they had like an eight person band on stage to be Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. And they had like a full on like marimba out there. It was, I couldn't believe how um, orchestrated the whole thing was. But then mm. the audience was talking so loud the entire time. I couldn't. So I, lame. I've never been to a show where people were every single person was ignoring the concert and just talking to one another to the point where I could not hear the band. It was audibly part of the part of the sound. Um, the people wow. talking. It was so annoying. I couldn't believe it. And it wasn't. And it wasn't just like a thing that happens here because I've been to. I saw explosions in the sky at that same little club a few weeks ago, and that was not an issue whatsoever. Um, huh. Maybe that was just it. You know. The, the audience or whatever for like a hipstery post-rock band is the kind of audience that's just going to sit there and listen. Um, but yeah, it was super annoying. And I, and I, I was, I almost like we even left early cause I was just like, I can't even experience this authentically because of the like assholes who were around me. Um, but yeah, kind of an opposite, not with the phones in terms of being opposite, but uh, in terms of like audience engagement and authentic experience kind of seemed a little bit opposite. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part, of the thing that I enjoyed so much is that that's precisely it. it was audience engagement with the performance on stage, you know, which, you know, I, I, I'm a performer kind of through and through it's I, since I was a kid, I've done performing to some degree or another. And, um, and I think I just love it. I, I gravitate towards performance because I've been thinking about this a lot, just about myself lately. I think there's just something, it's almost like, I, I think I have a hard time, like, being totally open outside of certain contexts, but in the the context of a performance, for some reason, I'm able to be fully honest, even if the content of what I'm saying isn't honest, like in an acting performance. There's still something at an affective or at an emotional level that is true, and I know actors talk about that shit all the time, but it's 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 true. It is it is it is an experience that I have felt on hundreds and hundreds of different occasions. You know. Um, that you feel that connection, whether it's in an acting class or on stage when you're touring around in a in a like a play, like a theater play, or whether it's in a film set or even just a fucking like music video or something like that. I've felt it many, many times, and it feels real. And I have a hard time, I think, feeling that same level of like expression in like analytical or in propositional contexts. And so I think that when I'm standing there and I'm seeing that. And I'm seeing the audience engaging with the performers and the performers engaging with the audience and they're in each other, like almost there's this integration. Like for me, that just like makes my soul sit, like just sing, you know? Yeah. It's like basic, even just basic respect for the person who's doing the work up there. Like this person is probably sacrificing a lot to do what they're doing, at least throughout their lives they have, right? Mm -hmm. You should show them some basic respect, even if you're not into what they're doing. Yeah, I never mm. get my phone out, even if like an opening band is playing and I'm not into it. Just like I'm getting my phone out, I'm just gonna go outside or like go to a corner or something. Right, some space dedicated mm. to not being in the audience, just to show some like basic respect for the person who's playing. It's kind of like it's kind of lost, right? Again, we're talking about this like relating to each other properly kind of thing. There's this kind of expectation now where it's like if you're not entertaining me, I don't have to show you respect, right? Mm. If you're not doing for me what I'm paying, that's for, right then I don't need to, you're just a tool to be used and I can just ignore you if you're not doing it the way I want. Um, that happens like, um, you know, I guess it's it's not super prevalent 
in America as much as it is in some other countries, like talking during movies. But that's the thing that I've experienced more lately than I have before. Um, and definitely in concerts, it's huge now where mm. if you don't like what the opening band or whatever is doing, then you can just kind of disrespect them and not have any expectation that you should be acting otherwise. Um, and I just don't get that. I don't get this, this sense of um, distancing yourself from the humanity of a person, even if they're you know on stage and performing, like it's not going to affect them in any way or that it, even if they didn't notice that it's just wrong mm. to do that. I, I don't understand it. I hope it doesn't continue down that road. Also, I think it's, it's a symptom of a larger tendency that people don't give themselves over to otherness or to the negative, but that they only allow for things that already fit within their like patterns of enjoyment, right? Or their patterns of perceived enjoyment. And so um, you sort of, you engage in this like process of serialization where you don't actually, where you foreclose yourself from potential opportunities. And of course, this isn't an absolute but this is a tendential thing that I think is part and parcel of a of a of a world where you can um, specialize everything for yourself, right? And where you can, you know, modify the algorithm so that you only get certain types of films placed in front of you, or only certain types of news publications, or only certain types of coffee, or only certain types of clothing, or only certain types of people, only certain types of language, only certain types of film, et cetera, et cetera. And so everything is so personalized and specialized. And so it just creates this weird kind of like, it's a kind of like a solipsism. I'm thinking about what's that fucking Charlie Kaufman film? Um, Anomalisa? Oh yeah, man, what a a good but not entertaining film. <laughs> That's like the ultimate apotheosis of the unentertaining film that you nonetheless have to appreciate. <laughs> but you know what's amazing about that film is what is it that ultimately sparks him to life? It's otherness. He hears that other voice. And so when you go to a concert, sometimes yeah, maybe the the music isn't the music that you love and Maybe you're there and you're trying to hit on a chick or whatever your reasons are for being there. But if you can just expose yourself and open yourself up to this artistic expression or to this event or whatever it is, wherever you are, then sometimes that can actually be that songbird like the the other voices in Anomalisa that can like spark some kind of joy or stimulate some kind of life in, inside of you. I'm all about that. I'm all about staying open to the potential for the possibilities of being sparked to life by the songbird is basically, that's like my life. <laughs> yeah, that is your life, dude. But even like for someone like me who does not have the openness to experience uh, Mark checked on their uh, psychological like Facebook uh, <laughs> survey or whatever, um, that's, ex- how could you, I don't understand how you could want to live in such a way that everything you experience has to be qualitatively similar to what you've experienced before. Right. That's just that's such a, a lacking way of, of going through life, whether it's in your own mm. individual experiences or in artistic experiences. Um, yeah. I mean, there's nothing like wrong with it, nothing necessarily wrong with it, but it's such an impoverished existence. Who would want to so. do that? I know. I know. All right. The last thing I want to say, too, is this is just like kind of a, a part one B of my sticky leaves. I just fucking love moshing, bro. And I know that I said. <laughs> I know that I said I'm not a booer in the last episode, and I'm not a booer, and I'm not really generally like a cheerer unless I Moshing have a few beers cheering, in me. Dude. But I'm a mosher for it's sure. It's a species of the genus cheering. Yeah, but 
like one of the things that I love so much about being in the mosh pit too is that people don't understand the cordiality of the mosh pit. I have had this happen multiple mm. times now where I've lost a shoe and someone has like helped me find my shoe or they've tapped me on the shoulder and be like, here's your shoe, dude. And I'm like, thanks, man. <laughs> I lost my shoe. You know, you knock somebody on their ass and then you pick them up or Help somebody up. picks yeah. them up. You have to. Yeah. Right, man. There are There is like a respect in the midst of the, what would you call it? Like orchestrated violence? Or organized chaos, yeah. Have you ever been in one of those... What's it called when it's like the wall of death where you get like the two sides that just run at each other? What do you mean? Do you know what I'm talking? So they you'll have this at like metal concerts where you'll have like they'll create this separation in the crowd and you'll have like this one wall of people over here and then, you know, a hundred feet away, you'll have another wall of people, and then the person on stage will be like, All right, on the count of three. <laughs> one, two, three. I and then the two sides just fucked up. Yeah. They just converge and they run at each other full speed. Have you ever seen it before? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if there's a name for it, but yeah. I thought it was called Wall of Death. I don't know what it's called. Bro, I've never been in that before because I don't go to a lot of metal shows and I feel like it's a more metal thing. But dude, that looks awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, have we ever been to a concert together? I don't think we have, actually. Hey, I don't think so. How is that possible? It's because you've lived I'm so far away most of the time. For so long, I've lived far, yeah. Yeah, and then whenever we're back in the same area, it's like we don't usually go to a concert. We should, though. We should really do that, especially if I come out to uh, to where you are now. Yeah, for sure, man. Oh, speaking That'd of that, great. dude, I just saw um, this thing called the Simon and Garfunkel story last week. Okay. And it was this, this like, it's basically a cover band of two guys who look like Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel. <laughs> and they, they play a bunch of the, the hits from the late 60s, early 70s. And then they have this, like, slideshow in the background and they intersperse the narrative of Simon and Garfunkel as a group throughout the songs or in between the songs. But what's funny is there isn't a narrative there. It's just like they got together and wrote songs and then they broke up because touring was hard. <laughs> There's no actual like dramatic moment in the narrative. <laughs> oh gosh. That's um, funny. And then the, uh, the best part was the end was like giving the, the epilogue of Paul Simon or Garfunkel and it was like Paul Simon wins 17,000 Grammys for Graceland. And Art Garfunkel like writes some poems <laughs> that nobody reads. <laughs> oh, um, so good. But the best part was we're talking about audience engagement here. The entire crowd was like over 65 uh, white people. Oh, yeah. And they were eating this shit up, dude. They were whooping and hollering. And like they got up and stood like seven different times. Um, to give standing ovations, they were just eating this shit up, and it was so adorable to see these old people get so into this stuff, man. Yeah, I used to go on bike runs with my buddy's dad, who was like a Harley guy, and I remember one time we were in Laughlin, Nevada at one of the big bike runs in the States, and they had a Bob Seger cover band. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, drunken Harley motherfuckers and Bob (laughs) Seger. Yeah, that's oh, a that's a match so on kerosene for sure. <laughs> it made me it made me see my future. When I'm in my 60s, I think I'll be a Harley dude, just grizzled, <laughs> and I'll be an alcoholic, and I'll have some partner who's got like big old fake boltons, and we're just gonna rock leather, and <laughs> it's gonna be amazing. And I'll have like leathered face because I'm just sun sun tanned all the time and shit. It's gonna be amazing. <laughs> Wait, so have you been to a metal show? Like, what's the 
What's the most metal show you've been to, or at least like the hardest I mean, show you've been to? I've been to a ton of like metal core, post hardcore, hardcore shows, but I've never been to like death metal, black metal. Okay. Uh, you ever seen a goat sacrificed on stage? No, no, no. I have. mock dead bodies. Yeah, none of that stuff. No, none of that shit. Yeah, black masses. No. Nope. 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 But yeah, I mean, I've I've been to tons of like, um. I guess like speed metal influenced metalcore kind of bands mm. kind of stuff. But yeah, no, that's it. But, but th- that's just mostly like, it's mostly like scene kids, you know, moshing around. Yeah. So I wonder, like I've been to some metalcore shows um, and it seems like th- those audiences tend more towards the hardcore than towards yeah. the metal. Cause like metal dudes are usually a lot more chill um, where hardcore dudes can be a little bit more crazy. Um, yeah, they're doing the hardcore dance and swinging their arms around, doing the windmill and kicking and shit like that. Yeah, and the metalcore tends, even though it's supposed to be metal and hardcore, it's it tends more towards the hardcore. So yeah, if, you, yeah. if you've been to some metalcore shows but not to some actual metal shows, then you're missing a certain level of audience engagement or a certain mode I mean, of I it did, at least. I did go to this tiny little bar here, and you might be able to help me understand this. Uh, and it was definitely more like death metal, but I wouldn't call it like a show because it's more just like this tiny little dive bar that does live music kind of stuff. But, you know, I got a little bit of the vibe, but they were like, put your fucking hands in the air. And everybody put like they didn't do like the devil sign or anything like that, like the horns. They like put their hands in the air like they were holding like a chalice or like a cup or something like that. Is that a thing that you know of? Oh, weird. So like so like their fingers folded over a cup. Yeah, kind of like imagine that, and then like all their hands went up in the air, and I was like, "Oh, are they just toasting? Like they're having a beer or something like that?" But I was like, "No." But then everybody in unison knew to do it, and I was like, "What are they doing? Like, is this like is this a metal thing that I don't understand? Like the metal chalice that you're, you're toasting, you're <laughs> toasting the to the evil enemies? demons?" Yeah, I'm like, what? <laughs> I was like, "What is this?" I don't know, man. I don't know if I've seen that before or what it is. Usually, it's just the horns, man. The metal invented the horns. That's what I thought. Yeah, if I'm gonna listen to demonic music, put devil horns up. But no, if this anything, was like a fucking yeah, hardcore metalcore guys shouldn't do the horns, man. That's like cultural appropriation. Yeah, no, they wouldn't. Yeah, this was this was this was a metal show. This was like a death metal band thing, for sure. Huh. This was, yeah, yeah. But I don't even call it like I wouldn't say it was like a proper concert because it was just like this tiny little dive bar where this band happened to be playing. But you know, but everyone f- kind of knew. Maybe it's like an Aussie thing. I don't know. Maybe you know my favorite. I don't know what you. What's like the the genius of the of the symbol you make with your hand during a concert? Whatever that is, my favorite species of that is during a guitar solo, when all the guitarists in the crowd raise their <laughs> off hand and do the like like the tapping thing yeah, on the yeah. fretboard. I love that man. It's so funny. <laughs> I don't know why it's so funny, but it is. That's amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. What is it uh, about air guitar, man? It's just like you—you almost have to do it. Yeah, it's like yeah. your body gets just just like possessed, and you have to start air guitaring. It happens with drums even, too, I guess. Even, right. Well, even people who don't play guitar, right? Yeah, drums for sure. For me, it's drums because I wish I could play drums. <laughs> right. So that's the one, you know. But God. But yeah, man, that's my sticky leaves. Love going to concerts. It was great. And I hadn't been to that kind of concert in a while. And so it was great to just throw my body around a bit. And like I said, remember that meme that was going around? It's like, I can't remember what it was. It was like someone would show a picture of like the French Revolution and they'd be like, oh, look, just a bunch of people having fun. No cell phones in sight or whatever it is. Um, 
all I could think about was that. I was like, oh, just look at this. There's a bunch of fucking people around and no cell phones <laughs> in sight. It was great. Well, cool. Well, let's go ahead and wrap it up there. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode of Owls at Dawn. Uh, as I said at the top of the show, if you go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn, you can find out how to support us there. And obviously, if you leave us a review or anything like that on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher, I don't know if they do reviews on Stitchers, but if somehow we can get access to the review, let us know if we skip over it. But if you do leave us a review, then we'll go ahead and read it out um, on the show. If you ask a question, of course, if you give us a five star, uh, five stars, then we will. Um, you can email us, tweet us, insta us, whatever. Just find us. You can reach out to us. And I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, dude. Just one more thing I think I have to say, man. What's that, dude? Das Americana. Americanski.